0: How you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad-free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus. You get this pure and simple. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
1: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How you doing there? It is time for the podcast, the podcast that tries to make economics comprehensible, a little bit more intelligible, and hopefully a little bit more relevant to all your lives. Hope all is well. I'm a little bit hanging today, John.
1: Are you? Yeah, you, was, you have that look about yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's it's all it's difficult. It's it's, it's the, the droopiness. It's the droopiness. It's like it's like pushing a rock up a hill.
1: Yeah. I've, have you got was, those hot ears that I you got, normally I've get? Got the hot ears.
0: I got the hot ears, which is very <laughs> bad. I don't know if anybody else gets the hot ears after night in the tiles. If you do, where were you? Uh, I was in a really nice little place called Piper's Corner, which is on Marlborough Street. Right. Listening to I was out with Dan Ariely. You know my old mate. Yes. yeah. He, You went for a tour to a diddly idly session. Dan was really into diddly-eye, right? Right. So he says to me, Where should we go? So we strolled around to the cobblestone, was jammed. So we strolled up to Piper's Corner and there was a Little diddly-eye band. Three fellas. No, two girls and fella at the yeah, beginning. Yeah. What I loved, right? And of course, Dan is Israeli, so he's never seen any of this stuff, right? Yeah. But what I loved is the fact that players just kept a fellow with a it squeeze It just grows book. organically. A fellow like with a squeeze box comes in, yeah, another girl yeah, with a yeah, yeah. fiddle, another fellow with a fiddle, fellow with Illum pipes, which I hadn't seen for a while, you know? Yeah. And then it's this this little bar on Marlborough Street, Piper's Corner. It was jammers. And as you know, it changes the atmosphere completely.
1: Oh, absolutely. Live music, and particularly diddly-eyed music. As you know, I was always into a bit of diddly-eye in my day. Yeah, you were. And and worked uh, on a lot of that stuff as a young fella. But there is something amazing about diddly-eyed music in terms of atmosphere. And the foot is going. And the the foot's foots going. And you can't help yourself. of course,
0: the the foot's going. The pints are going too. (laughs) That's the problem. By the way, if you're not from Ireland, diddly-eye is our affectionate term for Irish traditional music, which is extraordinary. We just call it diddly-eye because it makes kind of sound like diddly-eye. That's
1: it, yeah. And, uh, and, course, and that's the other element of it is that, you know, after a while, it all starts blending and becoming the same. But I think
0: after a while, we start blending as well. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Yeah. And I was, you'd know I was a real novice. I was getting my yup at, <laughs> <laughs> at, oh, no. yeah, yeah. at the wrong time. I was looking at me and oh no, who's the
1: rookie in the corner? Don't
0: you yup at the wrong time. I was yupping at jeans
1: reels. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that was why I'm feeling a little bit, a that's little bit under enough. the weather, but I'm good form. Good, good, for him. good, good. Listen, come here. I'm here. I want to. I've have a bone to pick with oh. with with the economists of the world, oh. or maybe not even the economists of the world. Maybe that's unfair. Guilty as charged. But Your honor. Go. The Nobel Organization. Oh, yes. Yes. Awarding Bernanke. Ben Bernanke, Ben Bernanke, the Nobel and and his two, and two buddies. other geezers, yeah, 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 yeah. One of them has a great set of uh, sideburns on him. Great Well, set listen, of shots. listen,
0: that's that's only a matter of time, John. You and <laughs> I,
1: <laughs> but awarding him the Nobel Prize for economics
0: for essentially okay.
1: for QE—that was no, uh, yeah, no, no, it's even worse than that, John.
0: Yes, yeah. it's, it's actually. Awarding the Nobel Prize for Economics for writing a paper that says money matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. ingenious Genius that is. So So enlightened. So, you know, from doing the podcast with me for the last couple of years, and I've written for a long time about the two most brilliant economists that I've ever studied were Minsky and Kindleberger. Both of these economists understood that at the center of the economic system, is money and the banking system, yes, right? Mm -hmm. And they also understood that you cannot look at the modern Western economy going back to the Industrial Revolution Mm. without understanding the role of money. Makes sense. Mainstream economics, particularly articulated by the Chicago School, of which Bernanke is one, said that money didn't matter. Most economic, can you imagine this, John, right? We'll let you into a little story here. Most economic models don't have a variable for money. I didn't until 2008. So they looked at the real economy without looking at money, right? right. So, <laughs> so, so Minsky was saying, hold on a second, hold on a second. But Minsky and Kindleberger were both ostracized by mainstream economics. Both of them. Minsky because he never wrote in mathematics, and Kindleberger because they never wrote in mathematics. They always are. this is the way the world works, right? Right. Okay. To, by, by the way, if you're into Kindleberger's book called Mania, Booms, mm-hmm. and Panics – is oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's actually over there. It's over there on the, on the wall. It's, it's essential, right? Anyway, Bernanke yeah. writes this paper. Says, "Do you know what? Do you know? Come here. I'll tell you something. <laughs> Money matters." Now I'll tell you a little story. In the summer of two thousand and eight, before our economy collapsed, yeah, one of the main government forecasters, the main institution that forecasts this economy, mm. gave me a call, and I'd worked with these people in the central bank years ago, so I know them all, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And I'd been writing. But not just me, the man on the street knew, right? Yeah, yeah. That look, if the banks go bust, it's going to be pretty scary. Or if the housing market goes bust, there's going to be a credit crunch. Yeah. There's a credit crunch, there's going to be a balance sheet recession. You know, we're going to look at something that looks really horrific. And the main forecast around me and said, David, do you think there's going to be a problem and a link between what's happening in the credit markets and the real economy? And I said to myself, what? are you fucking serious? In my head.
1: Yeah. They had no idea. Why did you say that out loud?
0: (laughs) They had no idea. So Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's mad. Okay, now it's all been reappraised, right? But But, this is what he's been awarded for. So he's been awarded for telling people that money matters, (laughs) right? How pathetic (laughs) is that? And what it basically is doing is it is making legitimate decades of economic research and Nobel Prizes given to people who didn't know that money mattered. This is the worst thing. Yeah. Who wouldn't believe it? But the interesting thing is Bernanke sent his paper to Kindleberger in 1982. And here is a letter on the 1st of May, 1982, from Kindleberger to Bernanke. So Bernanke's a young fellow at this stage. Sent his paper because Kindleberger was known to be the guy who understood all this thing. Right, right. And the response is, from Kindleberger. Okay, Charles Kindleberger, by the way, we're talking about. Dear Dr. Bernanke, thank you for sending me your paper on the Great Depression. You ask for my comments, and I assume... This is not merely ceremonial. I'm afraid you will not, in fact, welcome them. <laughs> I think, Now, this is just... Dis- There's an opener. I think you have provided a most ingenious solution to a non-problem.
1: Wow. Right? I and a slapdown!
0: The necessity to demonstrate that financial crisis can be deleterious to production arises only in the scholastic precincts of the Chicago School. And he goes on to destroy them. Jesus. So that's the great man Yeah. talking to the guy who's going to become the head of the Fed, who now got the Nobel Prize. Wow. Economics, you are yeah. on trial, you're in the dock, and you are, John, guilty as charged Absolutely. by John Davis. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> but I mean, actually, is there a link then between that Bernanke way of thinking and the Bank of England? And the Brexiteers, and did they huge, make huge those huge connections. connections, or fail to make those connections? They
0: fail Like, I mean, it's interesting you talk about the like financial crisis. Queen of England, mm. right? Did go into the Bank of England. She was at some sort of do in the in the Mansion House in England, yeah. Uh, just after the crisis, and she mused aloud to all these economists, "Few chaps were so clever. Why didn't you see this coming?" <laughs> It was a fairly good thing. And the reason they didn't see it coming was they believed all this nonsense. They'd actually gone to the ivory tower, they'd stayed in the ivory tower, they'd digested all this stuff. I go go on, I'll read you what more Kittleberger says, right? He said, blah, 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 on the Chicago School. If one believes in rational expectations, a natural rate of unemployment, efficient markets, and exchange rates that continuously lie at purchasing power. There is not much that can be explained about the business cycle or financial crisis. For a Chicagoan, he's talking to Bernanke, yeah. you are courageous to depart from the assumption of complete markets. And he's basically saying that you believed nonsense. And therefore your paper is of no consequence. Is not revealing anything that the man in the street doesn't understand. And yet the Nobel Prize was given to him for such a...
1: Thing. I'd love to have seen Bernanke's face when he's reading that. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, we digress. The UK, John. Indeed. Well, that's what I'm saying. Is that that link?
0: And I think I think you know what we've got to say at the top is I had a couple of English friends staying with us last weekend. Mm. They are traumatized. Yes. You know, yeah. English people are, are are you know I feel, I actually feel my brother's still over there. As you know, incredibly sorry for them now because yeah. they're just looking at as you call it the, the shit show and they're yeah. thinking what well, now they have they have a new chancellor. <laughs> yes, new chancellor. Well, Do you know? for this week anyway, they've a new chancellor. <laughs> they've had five chancellors yeah. since 2019. We've Fine. had five chancellors since 1997. Wow, that's so saying shows, something. It shows you the chaos. But but actually, uh, maybe we, we should have had more. Had, Twenty exactly. <laughs> but so Jeremy Hunt is the new chancellor. Mm. I'm going to tell you a story about Jeremy Hunt. Go on, go
1: on, go on Told go on. to
0: me by Brian Eno. Name dropping, right? Right. Brian Eno's daughter is a doctor. Right. And Jeremy Hunt used to be the Health Secretary. And I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago junior doctors in the UK went on strike. Yes. Because they were being overworked, yes. right? And they were all told, when you go on strike, get banners because the TV will be there, right? Banners saying what, what you're striking mm-hmm. about. And Brian Eno's daughter, with Brian Eno's help, I think, wrote a banner. Yeah. And Jeremy Hunt yeah. was the Secretary of Health. Yeah. And the banner read, I'm not a gynecologist, but I recognise a Hunt when I see one. <laughs>
1: Brilliant! <laughs> Chapeau <he get> on- <laughs> to Brian Eno and his daughter. <laughs> Did he get it on TV? <laughs> <laughs> it's just great. <laughs> anyway,
0: yes, they're in a bit of a they're in a bit of a pickle. They yeah. are in a major major pickle. It's very very hard to see how they get out of it. Like for example, they announced at the weekend. That their corporation tax would remain, would go up to 25%. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So it was yet another U-turn. But I mean, it means, for example, that British, just contrast to us, British corporation tax is now twice as high Mm. as Irish corporation tax. Yes. Flood of companies are going to come here. Why wouldn't they? We've got access to Europe. They don't. Yeah. We've got corporation tax, which is half of theirs. Yeah, we don't have housing, though, Matt. But that, well we, well, we always come back to that. <laughs> yeah, right? I know. But I'll I know. give you another statistic, which is amazing. Britain has a population of 60 million, and last year they raised 55 billion, which is a lot of money yeah. in corporation tax. Yeah, yeah. Ireland has a population of five million, and last year we raised corporation tax of 20 billion. So it means that Ireland. Yeah. Has less than a tenth of the population or around a tenth, less than a tenth of the population Mm -hmm. of the UK and raises, think about this, raises 30% of what the UK raises.
1: Yeah. It's incredible, actually. It is incredible. But we we spoke about this in a previous podcast, maybe uh, for people who haven't heard that. You can have a listen back from a few weeks ago when we talked about the perils of that as well. The
0: perils of that, yeah. I mean, I mean that's an imbalance, yeah, right? Yeah. But it shows you what's going to happen in the UK. So basically, we come back to it again and again and again. That good countries, and I say this because my English mates are really, I mean, they're they're just reeling. Don't know yeah. what the hell's going yeah, on, right? Yeah. None of them voted for this. Nobody, yeah, well, voted. nobody voted
1: for trust anyway, yeah, apart yeah, yeah, from yeah. the little cabal of, yeah, yeah, of yeah, conservatives.
0: Yeah. And and their country is being destroyed in front of their eyes, Yeah, you know? And so, you know, you do feel sorry for them. Like initially, I was like, this is kind of interesting and kind of funny for our perspective, right? Yeah. But now it's actually getting to the stage yeah. that, hold on a second, somebody's got to grab that country by the scruff of the neck and turn it around. So let's just go and talk to Mark Blythe, get his take, but let's be aware That although it's like a horror show over there, it's both instructive, because it could happen anywhere else, Mm. and it's cautionary, so we have to be aware. Let's go and talk to Mark. It's very rare that I go to a place where I have been many, many, many years ago as a pathetically bad dishwasher in Martha's Vineyard, but Mark Blythe is there, but you're not washing dishes, you're the swanky pants professor of the Ivy League world. How is the vineyard? I haven't been there for years and years and years.
2: They haven't recovered from when you were here. The local <laughs> economy is still a shambles.
0: <laughs> but you know, it's funny. I was, th- I was, I was looking at I Was it Marco Rubio or one of those guys deposited a whole load of Honduran or Mexican uh, immigrants in Marco's vineyard? What was that last week, was it?
2: Yeah, it was, the, it was DeSantis, the Florida governor. Bust them all up and then flew them up and dumped them here.
0: I know. And I just thought to myself, I was listening to that on the Daily by the New York Times. I was walking the dog the other day and I was thinking, A whole bunch of Hondurans is nothing like an invasion of Irish kids in 1988 in terms of the trauma (laughs) that we left. J1 in hand. Exactly. (laughs) Or even in my case, no J1. I couldn't be arsed getting one. I just turned up illegally. But um, anyway, tell me, you're in the vineyard, which is the playground of the uber-rich, which is delighted that we're talking to you. I realise now that you've actually elevated yourself. Are the Obamas around the
2: corner? No, we're at the other end of the island, next to a house that looks like Darth Vader's helmet. (laughs) <laughs> Listen Mark let's,
0: let's Let's talk The look, Let's talk about The United Kingdom Give me your take On the United Kingdom We have been having A little bit too much Of a laugh At their expense But now I realise Hold on a second This is now getting Very very serious In the beginning It was like Oh my god Look what's happening over there That's a shit show yeah. Kind of funny Interesting etc Boris Johnson going etc but now I'm looking at their bond market. I'm looking at their pension fund. I'm looking at sterling. I'm looking at current account deficits. I'm looking at budget deficits. I'm looking at the Bank of England all over the shop. I'm looking at nobody at the wheel. And we have all the various iterations of nationalism and regionalism and all the stuff we talked about before. What's your take on your home island?
2: Since 1986, the British pound has been mysteriously overvalued. It has been bought and held and speculated with by foreigners. So much so that 7% of global reserves are sterling. And sterling, as a country, is 3% of the globe's GDP. Nobody needs to hold sterling. The only reason you're doing this is because it's a convenient hedge, and it gives you access to the big markets in London. It also allows you to launder huge amounts of money through their property markets and other such things. And this has been a really nice trick, but it's all based upon one thing, competence. It's all based upon the notion that you know what you're doing. It's all based upon the notion that it's safe to keep your money there. And once you lose confidence, whether it's through the bond markets, through the financial markets more broadly, through the political markets, if you want, or a confluence of all three, then you're in trouble. Now, this is why this is particularly toxic for the the United Kingdom. The UK imports two-thirds of its food. The way that this expresses itself is when people stop buying those financial assets and they become more costly to service them, they exit. And when they exit, the exchange rate goes down and the cost of your imports goes up, which means your inflation problem is endemic and increasing. And if you're going to basically throw fuel on the fire with huge unfunded tax cuts on top of that, you are basically saying, we do not know what we're doing. And that's what everyone reacted to. It's a dumpster fire.
0: Now, I'm going to break this down a bit. So I've always thought, well, it's not what I've always thought, it's, I've always observed that sterling is much more, or the UK is much more inherently inflationary. And I think that always comes from the fact that the UK always uses their currency at the end in a sort of a very hydraulic Keynesian way to get out of a problem, okay? So the currency mm-hmm. falls. And I think that having worked over there, I was always intrigued in the city, and economists over there all saw the exchange rate as the policy of last resort. Okay, when all else fails, you let the currency fall. This is what they're doing. But I find it fascinating you say they import their food, and that is crucial. So the poorest people who spend a higher proportion of their monthly or weekly income on food are getting hit hardest.
2: Exactly. So we, I'm writing a book on inflation just now, and I'll give you a story that I got from Isabella Weber, the German economist. So her mum grew up in a small town in southern Germany on a fixed budget, single mom. And that meant any inflation at all was something that was felt instantly in the household. But she's got a friend who's also a single mom who got a big divorce settlement, and she buys the nice stuff that she can't normally afford. She's got less of a budget constraint, if you want to put it in the language of economics. And here's what happened this summer. Because people are worried about their budgets, they're not buying things like strawberries and champagne. And what that means is there's too much of those things around. So relatively speaking, the price falls. So the rich person in the village now has more champagne and strawberries because of the inflation effects Precisely. on everybody else Precisely. who's getting screwed. <laughs> right? So we think of this as like one one number 9% and we're all suffering 9%. No, 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 not at all. It varies massively sure. and it's usually the poor who get screwed the most.
0: Well, it's very interesting, very interesting. I remember in the last big downturn here in Ireland, some politician was talking about GDP and somebody responded about, whose GDP? Yours or mine? Uh, And it's exactly the same as inflation. Whose inflation? Yours or mine. Mm -hmm. So an actual fact, and and interesting about Isabella Weber, I'll just say, listeners, if you don't know, she has actually just come up with an extraordinary victory, which has been to persuade the German parliament to adopt significant price caps rather than allowing energy prices rise and then clawing it back with some sort of tax rebate. In fact, Isabella, who I want to get on the show, has actually been... Cussed, dogged and unbelievably effective is saying hold on a second once you let inflation get out of control even if you claw it back the psychological angst and dislocation that comes from the initial price rise lingers and affects people so extraordinary person and we'll definitely have on the show let's get to the UK now what is your prognosis for the next wee while you spoke on the show about a year ago about the fundamental disequilibrium in the united kingdom that isn't going away this has just been evidenced by recent events can they get out of it if not what does it look like
2: you have to put this in the context of what they've done to themselves for the past decade and a half so you start in 2008 by basically bailing out asset holders and then screwing the poor that's what happened that then fragilizes massively northern governments in particular preston lost 30 of his budget and think about all the social transfers that keep places like that going So then you engender the anger, and you weaponize the anger in a direction that's useful to you through Brexit. So then you do all the bullshit about it's going to change everything. Now, there was a moment with people like Cummings. Now, I may not have been the right guy in the right place, but he was actually saying something interesting. The old business model, where we basically rely on the city of London to generate a credit surplus, which we then push through the rest of the economy, and we swap houses with each other, that's done. We need to find a new way of earning a living in this world. And he was thinking that. But unfortunately, the rest of Tory power were just pretending that's what we were doing. So that opportunity was squandered. You limp along again, you get into the situation with COVID. You then basically massively increase the indebtedness of the state. Fair enough, because the alternative is a huge catastrophic downturn. But then when you come out of it, you then get into this ludicrous situation of on top of this, we're going to have massive cuts. They don't know what to do. The pathology is the British business model, such as it is, is kind of broken. And there are functioning companies and there are functioning pockets of entrepreneurship and great tech and all the rest of it. But the basic model of essentially what you'd call asset protection for the South and nationalism for the North is a toxic combination which has come unstuck. And if you can't even do the asset protection for the South anymore, you're in deep trouble. And that's where they are. Because really
0: because all. southern balance sheets have been destroyed. And the housing market is going to tank at 5%, you know, at 5% mortgage rates, 6% mortgage rates. The, the debts that were incurred in the last 10, maybe even 12 years are going to be monumental.
2: Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, somebody who's on 850 a month just now, push it up to 6%, they're on 1400. So yeah. that's a thousand quid of post-tax income in order to pay that. Where are they getting that? Nobody seems to know. And your fuel cap's not going to help. If all you're doing with your fuel cap is shoveling more money to energy companies rather than trying to do what Isabella Weber's doing, and basically do it through price caps at the front end rather than just paying off companies at the back end. So yeah, that's not looking pretty. And it's not clear what they're going to do. Now, of course, the tragedy here is that the Labour Party strategy seems to be say nothing, do nothing, don't screw up, and eventually I'll be elected which is not exactly channeling what their new business model is. Now, out of the conference, there's some good ideas there. Sovereign Wealth Fund for Britain for future investment, green tech, all the rest of it, someone I've been championing for a long time with Eric Lonergan. So there's some good ideas there. But do they grasp the gravity of the situation? Do they realize that the cupboard is going to be pretty bare when they get in? And they're going to spend a lot of time restoring credibility and essentially you know, putting Pumpty Dumpty back together again. But you know, do you actually have the wherewithal to transform Humpty Dumpty? And
0: you know, what, what is fascinating here is all this conversation is about a lack of vision for the future. A lack of somebody looking around the world, maybe doing a bit of traveling, maybe do, reading a few books, maybe talking to a few people and say, okay, what is going on in the world? And where is our little niche that we can make a few quid in 20 years' time, in 10 years, in 20 years' time? Okay? Rather than that, Mark, it seems to me That they're all looking backwards. Mm, That they exactly that the 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 inspiration is coming from somewhere else. You've thought about this quite a bit.
2: All countries are doing it in a weird way, right? The first one that made me think this way was the United States because the Supreme Court decision over abortion, and then Clarence Thomas turns around and says, and now we have to go back through these other presidents. And it's like, well, what's the imaginary of the world you want? A completely gerrymandered democracy with an authoritarian ruler and basically racist policing? This is it. So back to the 1870s, you know, that seems to be the model there. Trust, if it was only just for the hysterical funniness of actually dressing up like Thatcher and then (laughs) trying to do it again, it's just another monumental piece. I mean, Martin Wolf wrote about this in the Times. I mean, it's so blindingly obvious. Once you've privatised the housing stock, you can't do it again. Right? Once you've liberalized <laughs> banking and given them your credit card, you can't do it again. So, what exactly is Thatcherism, too? Right? So, everybody seems to be stuck in this kind of like governing by looking backward to some like Brexit. Brexit a classic example of this, right? Going back to some halcyon past where, you know, we had all these great free trade deals. So, you mean what? With the biggest free trade area on the planet, which is the EU, which you've just left. I mean, it's bonkers. So, it is this kind of governing by ass backward nostalgia.
0: And which is the same, like I mean, to bring in our friend uh, Putin. I mean, he's Peter the Great. He's actually yes, said, he's actually said, this is my model, you know. And yeah. wh- where does okay, where does that come from? Like, let's say the the politics and economics of nostalgia at a time when the world is hurtling forward at an extraordinary pace. Okay, where does that come from? Explain that to me from your with your political hat on.
2: I think it comes from the fact that the world's too damn complex. Nobody really knows how it works. We've, we've got intuitions for little bits, but. I mean, you know, no nobody knew nobody had even heard the words liability-driven investment last week until it became the thing we were talking about. So all you know, COVID, et cetera, all these shocks, it's incredibly complex. And it's all it's also a world in which when you're an economist, you, you're taught to think that the world works like this. Shocks are independent, right? So an oil shock is different from a climate shock, right? And they're normally distributed. That is to say, they don't all kick you at once. And we seem to live in a world where your know, oil shock does cause a climate shock, which then causes another shock, and they're not at all normally distributed. They're all coming at once. Adam's, uh, Adam Adam Tooze has called this the poly crisis, and uh, it's it's a good way of describing it because all these things happening at once. And I think that our kind of like nineteenth and twentieth century institutions of government basically can't handle it. They can't process it. They don't know what to do with it. So they retreat to first principles. What's worked in the past? Where do we want to be? Where's our safe space? Honestly, it's almost like a search for a safe space for governance.
0: So it seemed to me that you're kind of moving towards sort of an evolutionary approach, a sort of complex adaptive system approach that basically, you know, look at the, the economy like like the immune system. That's this alive, intelligent creature that's constantly adapting all the time and taking information and changing. And we're all sort of evolving at this time. But that's sort of intellectually an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. But in terms of politics, in terms of dislocated exactly. people... It doesn't term-
2: help you, does it? It doesn't help you. It doesn't help you. It doesn't, doesn't help you. No, you're absolutely so right. So where do you go? It doesn't help you. So concentrate on one big thing. The one big thing that we know that we need to do is basically decarbonize. And if you do this, you will generate the new technologies, the new industries, the new sources of employment. You will transform the business model of everyone. And it's a 100% incentive to do this because if you don't, we're all dead. Right? So just focus on one thing. If you start doing the short term thing of like, oh, but in America, we can't let the gas price go above $5, why not? If you want to subsidize the people who are hurting the most from that, you have other ways of doing that. Right? Um, you could simply take the, ch- the child tax credit. That was rolled out in the pandemic, and then give it to everybody who files a tax return under $50,000. Done, right? Done. There's your yep. fuel subsidy if you want to do that, one, right? There's loads of ways to do this, but it would have to be in the service of the one big project, which to me has to be and really should be decarbonization. Otherwise, you're just going to get drowned in the details. It's going to be whack a mole. You're going to be constantly like, oh, let's hit this thing. Oh, look, another one's come up. Let's hit this thing. And you just got to stay focused on where you want to go with this.
0: And tell us, that's a very long-term deal. And I, I was interesting, we had we had Neil Atkinson, who used to be the head of oil at the International Energy Agency last week. And he was saying, look, David, I'm with you on the carbon. But he says, for now, India, China, and particularly Africa will continue to burn liquid fuels. And there's this idea of, you know, we always said like the idea that, well, of procrastination. Like, yeah, I really want to do this, but you know what, right, not now. Yourself and Eric Lonergan, wrote a fantastic book two or three years ago now called Angrynomics. And it was like a sort of a Socratic, if that's not a bit too pretentious, discussion between two <laughs> fellas talking, talking nonsense. But it wasn't nonsense. You focused on what can be done to decarbonize. And you focused on mm. central banking and you focused on using the finance system and you focused on all sorts of things. Now, you tweeted the other day that there was a great opportunity to decarbonize at 0% interest rates. We've kind of pissed that up against the wall. But what now?
2: Well, you can still do it you're right? your cost of capital, so long as you're the thing you're investing in has a positive return. If you wipe out inflation, basically, you're still streets ahead. You can still do this at the interest rates we've got. It is more a question of just mobilizing that massive private sector balance sheet to go this way. And instead, what we have, particularly in the US, is this emerging war on woke capitalism, whereby anybody who says the words ESG or tries to talk about climate-friendly investment somehow a communist that needs to be shut down now to go back to your mate on the oil thing right i think that actually is not a great way of looking at things because it's a bit like saying the following in the 1990s africa and india they're going to need telephones they're going to be using copper wire for a very long time no they went straight to mobile that's true and there's there's loads of ways that these latecomers, in a sense have those advantages of being backward in the sense that you can then adopt the latest technology and plug and play and these technologies... It's like me and John going to the
0: pub on a Friday night when all the other lads have had seven pints and you take one look and say, nah, maybe not. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> there's there's yeah, actually exactly. an easier way of negotiating this easier than trying to catch up saying, I'm actually going to have eight pints now. Yeah, yeah. In one hour, I'm going to have eight pints and i go tequila and I'm going to get right up to your level. This is why this is my approach to economics. It's always like, okay, we take carbon neutral budgets, we take things and I think, okay, what does it look like in the boozer on a Friday night yes. at 10 past 10? You walk in, there's eight mates, are nine pints of the good. Yeah. You say I'm going home. Yeah. Our actual That's fact, exact. I don't have to join them. There's a <laughs> there's a better way of exiting the night than having ten yes. pints.
2: I, what I can do is I can go home and have some mushrooms instead. It's, it's so <laughs> much better, right? Well, actually,
0: the funny thing <laughs> so is, I, I was go. about to say that when I was at Martha, the last time I was in Martha's Vineyard. It was in a mushroom haze. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Nineteen and off me head, strolling around. And there's actually a particularly nice playground in the middle of Martha's Vineyard you might still be there.
2: And I thought it probably sw- is. The swings were
0: particularly nice that night.
2: Yes, <laughs> it's, it's, it's now known as the David McWilliams Trip Playground.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, listen. Let's get back to the UK because mm-hmm. we have been looking at the UK the last couple of weeks. Bizarrely, Ireland has decoupled from the UK to such an extent that now it's actually a spectator sport for us. But it's right. not for our farmers. But the thing about yeah. the UK, as you said, because, because they can't feed themselves. They've got to import. They've got to import, right? It's not really for our tourist sector because, again, come summer again, the UK will be a big, big tourism. And, of course, we've got Northern mm-hmm. Ireland, this 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 conundrum, okay? Let's say conundrum, yes. right? And, conundrum. of course, we've got your lads as well, the Scots, not knowing which way to go right? Or which way they're going to go, right? right? But how do you put this Humpty Dumpty back together again? That's what I'm asking you. And how long does it take? And what's the fallout? Because what I'm looking at, and I've said before, you know, good countries can go bad with very bad politics. The UK Mm -hmm. might not have been a good country, but it wasn't a bad bloody country, right? Mm -hmm. And now it looks like a disastrous country. As you said, we start with competence. Let's go back to competence. How does a country regain competence?
2: So the problem with regaining competence, I'll give you an example of this. Ed Balls put out a tweet where he said, what quasi Quartang has done is basically rip up 30 years of like the consensus on how you do policy. And the problem with that statement is it says, A, there are no choices to make. It's already, we, we've got the plan, we know what we're doing. And it's not as if the past 30 years were so great. So I'm not sure it's such a great plan. Second thing is if we do live in this world now, which is basically one where shocks are not independent, not normally distributed, and you're facing all these things at once, it's not clear to me that that'll, going back to the old strip works, that simply talking to the Bank of England about independence, et cetera, that's for the yeah. 1990s. Yeah, it's very no 1990s. There. It's
0: very new labour stuff. 90s, yeah. exactly,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So then what does it mean to actually do something different? So let's not be cynical about trust for a minute. And let's think about the fact that from the limited repertoire of what was available to the libertarian side of the Conservative Party, that was an attempt to break the business model. That was an attempt to try and do something different. And everyone said, no, no, don't do it, don't do it. And I agree, because I think it's a ludicrous way of doing it. But having the recognition that we just can't go on doing what we have doing because this thing has run out of steam and run aground and isn't working for the vast majority of Brits, that's where any government needs to start. And what worries me about Labour in particular is like they're literally saying now, do you can trust us? We are fiscally competent. Like, do you really want to like face the 21st century with fiscal competence as your first thing? Yeah,
0: they're, they're like Fine Gael with a bit of Marxism thrown into it.
2: <laughs> Very little Marxism. I think you've had more Marxism in Fine Gael. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. See,
0: there probably is. But so you're saying that they need to come up with some, some big, significant shift. And the idea should be, if you just, let's go back, and it's the same for Ireland as well. We are living in a sort of a Martha's Vineyard with shitty weather. Imagine Mm -hmm. that, right? That's Mm -hmm. Ireland. We have wind, we have wave, we have renewables, we have all this there. But we don't seem to, in this country, have decided okay, our industrial policy is going to be for the next 30 years, we are going to be the best at harnessing wind, Mm -hmm. putting together a network, at exporting it, you know, putting all the state's energy. In the same way as the Koreans did, if you look at and you know, Ha-Jung Chang is coming down to kilkenomics, his book on the twenty-three things they don't tell you about capitalism, what he's basically mm-hmm. saying is that great countries foster great industries. So the Koreans yes. they didn't go down the free market route. They didn't say, Oh, no. do you know what open it all up like like Russia, nor did the Chinese. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Isabella Weber's book is all about how the Chinese said, You can stuff your, your sharp shock. We're going to yeah. go slowly. We're going to build national champions. We're going to give mm-hmm. them subsidised capital. We're going to give them subsidised labour. We're going to protect them. And
2: then when they're ready to go, we're going to open up. Exactly. That's the model for us. So there's a, So if you think about what Biden's doing now, whenever Biden opens his mouth, he cannot help himself but to say, and this will create great union jobs. And you're like, look, mate, I'm a big fan of this as well, but 9% of the labour force are in unions in the private sector. In the United States. So who are you actually talking to? And the ideas that they have now about a national development bank and strategic funds, the CHIPS Act, all this sort of stuff, it's a redux of what they tried to do in the 1980s before the free market fundamentalists took over the shop. So we are, in a sense, going back again. Now, the thing is, are the only two alternatives we've got some kind of state-led green industrial policy or the libertarian free market? That is that it is that our only options? I think this is where you have to really look at this on a kind of a country-specific basis what Ireland would do is going to be very different from what France can do. They all start in different places, right? They've got different ingredients. And I think what we need to do is kind of, and this is something Eric and I talked about in Angrenomics, is we fear nationalism because it's a horrible exclusionary ideology, which is borderline, if not overtly racist. Fine. But the fact of nations and the fact of national economies allows for a degree of experimentation Whereby somebody's going to crack something, and we're all going to go, oh, that's interesting. Look what the Irish managed to do. Let's scale this up, and that's what we need. We need kind of like less of the, how can I put it, uh, worrying about what the overarching mega plan is, and actually just let people and firms and businesses and 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 countries do it. Get on there, create the incentives to make it work.
0: I remember I'm just going to leave on on, on this. It's on that particular issue of you know I like that idea of recipes that every nation has its own little flavour. And the flavouring is quite different. Uh, Obviously, we will not lecture anybody in this country on food or anything like that. So So we will You and
1: cooking. Cooking, (laughs) or even on
0: me and cooking, because it's well known that I am a tea and toast man. (laughs) Tea and toast and maybe, maybe an scrambled egg. That's the height of it, the height of it. But Eric Lonergan made this very, very good point, which was that when Ireland became independent in 1922, by 1932, 86% of all our electricity energy was sustainable.
2: Because right. the
0: guys who got in, they said, we have a big river called the Shannon. And it was mm-hmm. actually Michael Collins was actually talking about this. There's a company called Siemens that seems to be able to dam these things and actually build these things. And if we do this, what we're going to do is we're going to express nationalism, not in a screw the Brits, but we're going to express nationalism as we can bring free electricity to you. everybody Mm -hmm. and that's what the nationals Mm -hmm. can do so is that what you're saying the national project can be seen as something enlightened a specific dynamic and for the good of the people
2: yeah and particularly i mean imagine the difference that it made electrifying parts of rural ireland i mean when you go in and you actually switch on the light at night right i mean it's transformative of people's lives and what they can do and how they think about the world And what have we done instead? Let's give bankers an even bigger bonus. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's truly pathetic. But you're hitting exactly on the right point, David, right? We need something that's going to inspire because we're in a period in which it's too easy to channel fear. It's too easy to channel cynicism and distrust. And when you have people like Liz Trust, which rhymes with distrust, I mean, you know, come on, it's even simpler. But, you know, jokes aside, we need to stop this. We need to actually say, yeah, there's a lot of challenges out there, but we need to work together in such a way that it actually benefits ordinary people or it's never going to happen. It's not about grand ideologies. It's about getting stuff done. Listen, a pleasure, Mark. We'll see you soon. Always a pleasure, my friend. Fascinating
1: stuff. He's great. So He's, he's, brilliant. I love he's like- just absolutely brilliant. But let's... Pick apart some of the points he made and talk about what's going on in America and interest rates and and how what's happening in the UK can happen anywhere. Yeah. But let's pay some bills first.
0: Always a good idea.
1: Do you know what Mark was saying there, what what I was thinking is like the UK is almost like a functioning alcoholic, (laughs) like drunk on ego and nostalgia. Mark was talking about nostalgia there a lot. And of course, nostalgia and looking back is not sustainable. And he's talking about UK needs to find a new business model to transform the economy. Yeah, it does. And we can't be looking back. You need to be looking forward with vision.
0: Nostalgia is incredibly dangerous because people's memories play tricks in them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's memory. Like, you know, we we all try to memorise the good things. Yeah. And so we have a rose-tinted view of our past, right? And if you think of humans, we're only a collection of memories. Yeah. Added a bit of water and a few neurons. But that's what we kind of are, if you know what I mean. And nostalgia is incredibly dangerous because the bits that you pick from the past are the nice bits. The beautiful thing about Ireland is, you know, we don't do nostalgia at all because the past was shite. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like the Brits go back to, the Brits can say, oh, we'll go, back yeah. we I mean, go back to the 1950s when we ruled the world. Go back to the 1950s when we were terrorised by the Catholic church. <laughs> we had no money. Half a million Irish people emigrated to England alone in the 1950s. Yeah, so yeah, the great yeah. thing about having a shite past is you don't want to go back there. So you've always, so I have always thought that Ireland is quite a modern country tends to look forward quite a bit, right? Mm. Now, of course, all those... So that's, that's
1: only a recent phenomenon. That's,
0: but that's why I think that these, all these anniversaries, you know, Michael Collins and all this sort of stuff, yeah, remember it, but move on to hell. Yeah. So what I'm saying, John, is that nostalgia is dangerous mm. because nostalgia plays tricks on us. Mm. And therefore we don't really understand what happened because we're so selective. But what he was saying is that, you know, in the, in the United States, you have make America great again. Mm. That is a nostalgic thing. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take back control. These are nostalgic things. Take it back again. The, even the, the yeah. words that are deployed are all harking back to something that was a better time. Yeah. I mean, what I find extraordinary about the United Kingdom is that the United Kingdom, what's happening in the UK, right? So basically what has happened is the world has changed in the last six months, actually since the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. That the price of energy has gone up and that has dramatically and unexpected, because nobody expected the war in Ukraine, right? And that has driven up the rates of inflation everywhere. Now the rates of inflation are so high, like in the United States, right, in the US. Mm. Inflation this week was published yeah. for September. Yeah. And it shows that inflation in the US is running at 8.2%. Core inflation, core inflation has risen by 0.4% month on month. And what that means is inflation is accelerating. It's not decelerating. So it means the Fed, in order to bring inflation down to 2%, has to increase real interest rates quite dramatically. Yeah. So at the moment, Chicago Futures, which is basically a futures market that tells you where interest rates are going to be in three months' time, is saying that American interest rates will be at 4.8%, so 5% Fed funds Mm. in December. Wow, okay. And it's talking about Fed funds 6% in June. Mm. Now, that... Totally changes the game because remember we talked about margin calls. Remember this idea of yeah. margin calls? So the yeah. entire financial system. What what is extraordinary with the financial system is nobody really knows where borrowing ends and lending starts. Everybody is borrowed and lent, right? So banks are lent to private equity, they're lent to developers, yeah. developers are then taking rent from us. Yeah. We as depositors lend money to the banks, but we also borrow money from the banks in mortgages or mm-hmm. in you know car loans, et cetera. Yeah. So the entire system. Is based on borrowing and lending. And the fundamental foundational price, of course, is the rate of interest. Yeah. When that goes up, everything falls. Remember last year we were saying, we were saying, look, you know, to people, young people buying houses, just hold off. Yeah. Hold off. There's too yeah, many, yeah, yeah. there's too much, there's too much going on now. House prices will fall by that 20%. Because interest rates will rise so dramatically that all asset prices, it's not that there's anything unique with this, mm. all asset prices will have to fall.
1: Did Bernanke right? see this coming?
0: <laughs> You <laughs> no, he was in Chicago in an ivory tower. I right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly, right? So if you think about what's, what's going on, like the margin calls that will be demanded in the financial markets in the next three or four months mm. because of these increase in the rates of interest, because of the fall in the price of assets, are going to be phenomenal. Now, that's why the UK matters. Because what's happening right, in the UK, okay. so what's happening in the UK, in the UK guilt market, is, and we talked to him with Jumana a couple of weeks ago, yes. right? yeah, yeah. It's it's back again, right? So basically what's happening is pensions, let's say you and I mm. decide we want a pension. So we go to a pension outfit, and that pension outfit says, okay, let's do a 30-year, well, in our, in our vintage, vintage that would be like a two-year yeah. pension, right? But let's say we we're younger, <laughs> right? two-year pension. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, it's, uh, so, they, so, so they say, okay, in 30 years' time, I'll give you back X, right? Yeah. So they they make it 30-year prompts, in order to make good on that promise, they have to find a 30-year asset, right? Yes, so yes. basically they say, I'll give you money back and I'm going to find an asset that generates money over the 30-year period, right? Mm. So they buy a UK government IOU, which yeah. is a gift, right? For 30 years. But the problem is when interest rates were so, so low, all the time, that the yield on those gilts was very, very modest. So that couldn't keep the pension fund manager in skiing holidays and fine wines and houses in Fox Rock and all that sort of thing, right? So what they had to do, and the Irish pension funds were the same, carry on, right? In order to get a decent income, when yields are very small, you have to buy loads of those things, the small yields. So you add up all the yields, you start to get a decent income, right? So they then started to borrow, what's called repo, to the banking system so the bank said, OK, fine. And they bought gilts from the banks, but with borrowed money. Mm. And they bought it all on margin, right? right? So now, when the price of gilts, of bonds, is falling, the people who borrowed have to come up with hard cash in order to pay the margin. The
1: margin call, And yeah.
0: this is precisely what's happened to the UK pension funds. So the UK pension funds are now going bust, right? And that's why the Bank of England is in trying to buy gilts to force back up the price... So they won't go bust. But the problem is, when you have an inflation rate of
1: 10%,
0: you need to be tightening monetary policy, not loosening. Buying gills is loosening monetary policy. They're injecting cash in. So they're caught in this policy dissonance where they should be doing A, but they have to do B to protect the financial system. So amazingly, the financial system is completely at odds with the financial policymaker Because inflation is going the other way. How did it get out of this though? It's incredibly hard for them to get out of it. Yeah, It's incredibly hard. The only way they'll get out of it is starting weakens dramatically. If the housing market, they they will have to have a huge recession in the UK. It's it's, it's it's inconceivable for me as an economist to see how you get out of this. Because if the Bank of England continues to buy gilts Mm. to support the pension fund industry... What it's doing is it's loosening monetary policy. Yeah, 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 yeah. When it's loosening monetary policy, it means the rate of interest can't go up. But if the rate of interest doesn't go up, the rate of inflation won't come down. So they're right. caught in a classic monetary cul-de-sac. Now, that's England. And everyone says, okay, but that's the UK's special case because yeah. there's trusts and the five chancellors and, you know, Brexit and la, 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 la. That's all in the terrible mix. That's so a terrible yeah. policy mix. But imagine now interest rates at 6% next year in America. That means what they call the risk-free rate in the world, is 6%. So you're starting at 6%. It means the Eurozone will either have to have an incredibly weak Euro, or we'll have to increase interest rates to match the Americans.
1: Right Now, I think what we're going to do... What's, what's desirable for us?
0: Much more, the weak Euro. Much, much more desirable, right? Because you... So basically, when you look at Forget Ireland for a second. When you look at the eurozone, the eurozone is almost a closed economy. We do most of our trade with each other. So Germany Mm. trades with France, France trades with Italy, Italy trades with Spain, Right, okay, right. So that means that the rate of inflation is internally generated by something like energy prices, Mm. okay? If the euro continues to fall, for example, the UK is a much more open economy. So when sterling falls, as Mark was saying, straight away food prices rise. Yes. Europe is self-sufficient in food. We're food exporters, right? Yeah. So as the euro falls the rate of inflation that we import will be much less than in a smaller economy like the UK. So that's number 1. Mm. As the euro falls, European exporters will be much more profitable. Number 2, to export our way out of growth. Right. But as the euro falls, Europeans will become less rich because our purchasing power falls.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: I think that's a much more sensible strategy than trying to follow the Americans because if you look at what's happening in America, the American inflation rate is seeping into the economy. So it's gone from manufacturing into services, right? In Europe, still, the rate of inflation is very much an energy issue, Mm. and only an energy issue. Mm. Why? Because the European economy isn't operating at full tilt, hasn't been for a long, long time, so there's excess capacity in Europe. So in terms of figuring all this out for the average person, if you're an Irish person and you've just bought a house, or you've got a mortgage, right, which is basically lots and lots of people listening to the show. Mm-hmm. If you've got a mortgage, mortgage rates are going to rise and they're going to rise very very quickly. Yeah. So whatever you were paying last month, you're going to be paying much more next month or next year in six months mm. time. House prices have to fall in a situation of to doubling of interest rates, maybe a tripling of interest rates, even wow. if we right? Yeah, yeah. So what we're looking at is a serious difficult winter. And there is an outside chance but it could become mainstream of what happened to the UK happening to the pension funds in Europe, which is why the ECB won't raise rates. Because they also recognize that what happened to the UK could happen to us. The only difference we we'll land here is the UK depends on the kindness of strangers. And by that I mean the UK finances itself with foreign money. Yeah. So the UK runs an 8% balance of payments deficit, which basically means the Brits are spending money on the never-never, right? Yeah. Their, their living standard, as I always say, is rented, not earned. Mm-hmm. Now, who have they rented it from? They've rented it from people who invest in UK government guilts, right? Yeah. So they have to keep the rest of the world on side. The European Union runs a balance of payments surplus. We internally finance our own deficits, so we're not in the same position. Right. Okay. So we depend on ourselves. The yeah. UK depends on the kindness of strangers, but ultimately, what we're looking at is, and we've seen it before. We saw we saw the crash in Ireland, we saw the banking yeah, meltdown. Yes, right. Yes. We've seen this picture before, and I think we're at the very beginning of what could be an equally similar year of carnage in financial markets. And to get back to Bernanke, <laughs> money matters. John, yes, there's always a silver lining. Who doesn't like Blue Skies and Bumblebees and lovely songs about summer and love and the way of the world? We can always depend on art. This is the proud dad moment. Lucy's newest single, Bumblebees and Blue Skies. Take it away, Lucy.
3: You ask her to dance And then the light begins to fade I'll turn around and watch you walk away
0: Only from Rustolium.
2: Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
3: Hi, I'm Ando, and I'm Fer, and we host Niñas Bien Niña F- podcasts. We want to invite you to listen to our show. Niñas Bien means "good girls" in Spanish, but you have to know that this is not a podcast for good girls or for girls at all. It is a comedy podcast, so everyone is welcome to listen. We talk about sex, relationships, technology. We recommend movies and TV shows and discuss pop culture in general. And there is Chisme Ajeno 2. A section we have just to gossip about everyone. So you'll find something you like here. And you'll practice your Spanish. The cleanest Spanish you'll find, we promise. And if you already hablas español...